Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Right now on Fast, how the mighty have fallen. Apple and Microsoft are each down about 10% from the recent highs, losing nearly half a trillion dollars in combined market cap in just a few weeks. What is behind the moves lower, and what does it say about the strength of the market? Plus, all eyes on Eli. Lily, that is. The pharma giant reporting earnings tomorrow, and the focus will be on its latest weight loss products. What can we expect to hear, and can new trial results from Novo Nordisk change the game? And later, Tesla's C-suite shuffle, a new high for URI, and Tyson shareholders fly the coop. <laughs> the details behind all those stock moves are coming up. I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money. We're live at the Nasdaq market site on the desk tonight. Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, Dan Nathan, and Guy Dami all here in-house. Mm. We start off with a potential warning sign for the markets. Major indices all kicking off the week with solid gains. The Dow adding more than 400 points. The S&P 500 rallying almost a percent. And the Nasdaq not far behind. But not everyone came along for the ride. Check out Apple pulling back more than a percent and a half today. The world's biggest tech company is now more than 9% off its all-time high hit in mid-July. And that's not all. Microsoft managed a gain today, but it's down an even 10% from its record high last month. So is this cause for concern or a sign that the rally has actually broadened out, that we can move beyond just these two you know, generals, Dan. Yeah, so when you think about the moves that the two of them have, okay, like technically they've broken the uptrends that have been in place for most of this year. I think that's important in a market where people don't really care much about valuation. When you think about how far Microsoft and Apple have come, they make up nearly 14% of the S&P 500, the two of the stocks. Um, together, I, if you look at the, the reports that they had, they were fine. There was nothing great. There was nothing horrible one way or another. But they sold off really hard. And I think that is important to note in the fact that it happened very quickly. So if you were to have some of these other names, kind of join the party, that would certainly be a problem. But you talk about the rotations that we've seen, and it has been pretty good. If you think about the S&P at its lows on Friday morning, it was only down 3% from those highs with two of the biggest components that were down 10%, really in a straight line coming off of news a few weeks ago. So to me, I think you could look at it, if you wanted to try to be really bearish in a slow market, we've just gotten through earnings, we know we don't have another Fed meeting until there, you could say, if we do see some things start to snowball a little bit, some of these other names join the party, if we were to see... Uh, Amazon, if we were to see, uh, you know, Google, which gapped up 10 percent, that's fill in their gaps. We could have a bit of a problem right now. I think it's OK. All right, we'll see the other sectors which rallied today continue their rally. The broadening out of yeah. the market, industrials, financials, consumer discretionary, which are all strong. We see them continue to rally. The markets can hold up, can't they? Can I ask you to ask a would you rather of guy? Oh, wait, can I follow the rules? Would you rather? Well, it's, I'm, I'm not. I'm, I, but I think <laughs> it would be interesting to ask someone, would you rather the market actually follow higher the mega cap tech stock? Mm-hmm. Or would you let them sell off and see the rest of the market brought? Right, try that, out, guy. What do you think? So you asked oh, her to ask. Sorry, I'm confused already. Yeah, I, you know what? I, I was I was doing great until that last part. Yeah. I'm, I'm out. I'm out. You are out, guy. <laughs> I understand what he meant, though. Oddly enough, yeah. <laughs> it's if you had told me on July 20th mm-hmm. that by August 7th both Microsoft and Apple would be both down 10 percent from the all-time high, then said, okay, guy. Where's the S&P 500? I would say, Melissa, we are no doubt trading down to that level, 43 and a quarter, where we topped out at last August, and we're probably threatening to go through it. Yet here we are at 45.20. So I guess it's a good thing to sort of answer Tim's question. I think it's a matter of time before the broader market catches up to what these mega cap stocks are doing. But today, anecdotally, outstanding. Do you think so, Karen? I agree. I mean, I, I well, I think we. I would have thought the market lower, but I think this is much better action. I think that um, to see other companies, other sectors, sort of join the party. I mean, there were some like travel, which is pulled back a little bit. We're yeah. just going crazy, and then love to see that in banks. Love to see that in industrials. Consumer discretionary, I think, is still unclear because we do have the student loans beginning to be repaid uh, next month, and so. That's a little less clear to me, but I, I feel much more comfortable with a market like this. I still am short the IGV, which was up today, because I do think that high flyer index uh, is, has, should have some pressure on it with rates having moved the way they have. Tim, question for you. Can I get oh, back? Oh, oh, yeah, can I get, oh, 
right, so here's the thing. So think, right. think about this. We just talked about the two big ones, okay? But think about semis, okay? What we heard from AMD, what we heard from Taiwan Semi, what we heard from yep. Texan, what we heard from Qualcomm, and the list goes on and on. Wasn't particularly great. My question to you, and I know you focus a lot on the relative strength of this index. You know, when we get to NVIDIA in a few weeks on August 23rd, I really feel like it has the potential to have this sort of reaction that Microsoft and Apple, because really, just good is not going to be good enough. So I need to apologize first, because oh. I have obviously <laughs> taken this desk off the yeah. rails, and oh, yeah, the irreverence that's going on here now was... Unacceptable. I mean, yeah, it's unacceptable. <laughs> so let me answer Dan's question, okay. and then can we give the show back to Melissa, please? Sorry. Um, I, I, look, as I've said, we haven't made new relative highs on semis since NVIDIA reported. And, and the Qs as well. And if you look at Apple's chart, it hasn't broken through to the downside, the 100-day moving average since September of 2022. And we all know where it all went. And on some level, these big stocks and Apple, notably, it, there's, a, there's a reflexivity to all of this. And there's a circular nature. I mean, will they, can they pull down the other stocks if it's aggressive enough of a sell-off? And I would argue that Apple is discretionary spending. It's not a tech company. And it's their third straight quarter. Um, they pulled a lot forward. I think it doesn't bode well for discretionary. Um, but I think right now the broader economy is in a pretty decent place. So um, I actually don't think it's a lot to be alarmed about. The, 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 the velocity of the move, mm-hmm. I mean, it's pretty major stuff that we've seen. But, right. but Seeing rotation that aggressively means a lot of people have been offsides the broader economy and need to get there in a hurry. To uh, pull a page from Karen's playbook, though, I mean, some would argue that those valuations, like, for instance, an Apple, should never have gone to 30. Right. So this that, pullback is natural, and it's within, yes. totally within the range of normal behavior for the stock because it should not have been at 30 to begin with on a forward P.E. basis anyway. Right. Same with Microsoft. Mm-hmm. We all thought Microsoft, great company, deserves a premium. Does right. it deserve that premium? Probably not. And so the quarter was very good, um, but not quite good enough. And Apple, the quarter had some, you know, little nicks and whatever. But to me, NVIDIA will be really important. As Dan said, August 23rd, I think if it is anywhere close, if it is $11 billion, that's bad. $11 billion is oh, so not they to beat, enough. In other words, they the have to beat. Forecast. They have to beat. Which they wouldn't have said if they didn't yes, think they could I really beat it. Exactly. They had to be sandbagging. So if they don't beat... Unless they have something like, we have such a giant book, we just were not able to fulfill, and we'll, we'll be doing that, but I think $11 billion will not will not hold the, this stock here. Karen said that actually the day NVIDIA reported. Yeah. She said exactly those things. And I think today, in small part, this re-steepening of the yield curve, which again, went north of 100 basis points, square to close, I think less than 70 basis points, which is, a, again, an amazing move in a short amount of time. I think the market's construing that as positive, and maybe in the very short term it is. Historically, though, it's the re-steepening where risk assets start to get whacked. In the week that Apple was going to report, and we talked about it for two weeks leading up to it, the big kahuna, we were saying the VIX opened the week at 13. Okay, It was just saying to you that there was no fear in the market. The implied move in the options market, the one-day move for Apple, was only 3%. That might have been one of the smallest one-day implied moves for Apple into a print, especially after this like perfect 45-degree angle that Carter talked about. He was on the show talking about it. So the fact that that stock sold off 5% in a straight line told you is where everybody was. They were on the same side of it. I think there's a lot of other stocks like that, but we're going to need this sort of, like I don't know what you want to call it, snowball effect or something like that, to put some real fear back in the market to get the VIX back above um, 20, if you will. But there are levels, and Nostradami told us last week, you said that that breakout level uh, of 176 in Apple would be a great place to start adding to that. And it went right there. Microsoft's got a level of 300. Fill in the gap maybe to its last earnings from April back to 275. Those are where you want to buy the stocks, which is that's where you want to buy the QQQ if those two stocks get back to those sorts of levels. I think, you know, I was selling uh, just not major stuff here, but I was selling some puts out to down to 160 on Apple. Um, based upon the velocity of that move, that vol and those deltas were paying you. Like in two weeks, do I want to own Apple at 160? Sure. Um, and, and I can trade out of that if I actually, if the stock gets put to me. So you don't get these opportunities with, some of, with the biggest stock in the world, the stock that moved 54% into those numbers off of Jan 4 low. And, and I, I just think that if you now look, again, relative Apple to the S&P, it's, it's back to where it was last year. So all the outperformance is gone. Mm. Does that, I mean, does this hearten you at all, though, that the markets are differentiating? Well, I look like the heartening type. <laughs> I know. I asked. I started yeah. asking you that. I thought how I want to ask you of all people. No, but that the market is differentiated between the earnings reports that, as Karen had mentioned, Apple and Microsoft had the little nicks or whatever you want to call it in their reports, and so they sold off. They warranted that sell-off. They should not have been at that P.E. given what right. they delivered. 
I think it's then a we had Alphabet and we had Meta. It's, it's a different story. It is a good sign that, you know, a quarter that's good but not good enough, guidance that clearly wasn't good enough is not being rewarded anymore. Right. That's an encouraging sign. I mean, the fact that we're seeing this rotation, despite the fact, again, Apple, Microsoft, some other names have gotten whacked over the last week and a half, S&P still 45.20, a very encouraging sign. I think it's going to be relatively short-lived, though, because, again, these global bond moves, that, nothing's changed on that front at all. And, again, the re-steepening of the yield curve, which banks love today, I don't know how much longer the market's going to like it. Now a lot of people are seemingly talking about some credit event in the back half of this year. Crude oil's back on its source. I'm sure we'll talk about that at some point. But things to be concerned about in the fall. Higher bond yields, so interesting, though, because we knew that it was going to be higher for longer. It's almost as if we didn't want to believe that, that it was going to happen. Nobody wanted to believe the Fed. All of a sudden, Fitch downgrades, we see a spike, and it's like, oh, it's going to happen. We better start selling. I mean, it, I know. It, it, but it the is- underpinnings to the economy for the bulls in the market are still the same. If you want to see a soft landing or no landing scenario, it's still there. Yes. That's why I really buy into this story of it's just a, it's the Treasury saying we have so much more to sell mm-hmm. and we're going to be selling 10 years, for example. And so we see two's tens to Guy's point, 67 basis points down from 10, I don't know, 310, wherever it was, um, that that's really just a supply and demand issue. That's it. More supply, 10 years coming. You better either step back and wait or buy them now if they get cheap enough. Well, it, it's, you know, I guess this is what we're calling a bearish steepening when you see the long end actually selling off. And, and it's not good for equities, all right? Let's just be clear. And we've often said, I mean, there's different things you can characterize movements in the long end equate to. Um, this is not really, a, you know, a, a concern on inflation. It is concerned on maybe some of the macro, some of the credit. Karen's right. A lot of this is technical. Um, but, but the reality is um, owning equities when you can get 5.5% from T-bills, um, the bar's gotten that much higher, let alone how you value equities to begin with. And that's the biggest problem with everything we're talking about, is the stock market is expensive by any measure. I don't know what the economy's going to do. Clearly, it's playing out a lot longer to go into a, a downturn. I don't think the economy's in a bad place at all. I realize there's a lot of things that are ugly. I know leading indicators are not good. I know it's a manufacturing recession. But it's the equity market valuation that, that's the problem. For more on where the markets go from here, let's bring in David Rosenberg, founder and president of Rosenberg Research. David, great to have you with us. Um, You say it's silly season these days for the equity markets. Why is that? Well, I think it goes back to the comment uh, that was just made uh, about valuations. So uh, I understand the momentum aspect of this market and the technical aspect of it. And we can debate uh, the soft landing or hard landing. I would say that even if you have a soft landing or no landing view, uh, let's face facts. You have a, a 20 multiple on the S&P 500 uh, on forward earnings. Uh, that's a 5% earnings yield. And you can pick up 5.5% uh, in the treasury bill market with no cyclical risk, no duration risk, no capital risk. So I would say that, you know, when you do the math, uh, it's a very expensive market, no matter what your macro view is. Uh, and so when I'm talking about silly season, it's one thing to have a 20 multiple a couple of years ago when rates were at zero. Uh, but today, the equity risk premium has only been where it is today, less than 10% of the time in the past. Uh, so the valuations are extreme. Uh, I'm not going to say that they are dot-com level extremes, but we are in the top 10% of uh, valuation excess that we've had historically. And I think that's a, that's a warning sign. How do you see this playing out then? It does seem like so many people are all of a sudden, you know, moving to the other side of the boat, so to speak, in terms of uh, soft landing scenario, no landing scenario. They're jumping on board. We see uh, strategists bumping up their price targets for the S&P 500 by year end. I mean, it just seems that all of a sudden everybody's getting really bullish just when you say silly season is starting. Well, I guess it's the uh, it's the benefit of having done this for 40 years. So you see what happens is that the market takes off uh, for whatever reason. Uh, and then you get the analysts and the economists and the strategists uh, then scurrying around trying to fit the narrative uh, into the price action. Uh, sometimes a stock market's gonna do what it's gonna do. You know, we go back to 2007, for example. I mean, nobody really had a recession in their forecast and everybody was talking about, you know, where's the recession? We had the inverted yield curve. The lags are extremely long uh, and, um, as we had uh, back then, as we had today, we had uh, a very expensive market on our hands. And at the same time, we had a ripping rally, uh, you know, from uh, the summertime of 07 to the October 9th high. The market absolutely ripped. 
and uh, everybody's scratching their heads. Of course, we know what happened next. Uh, and so sometimes people just fit the, the narrative uh, to the price action, because what else are you going to do? But we all know that the market is this malevolent beast, does not always respond to valuations. It's not a timing tool. It doesn't always respond to the fundamentals. Uh, it just sometimes takes a head of its own, and it's called animal spirits. The reason why the term animal spirits is around is because that's what happens when we have a momentum based rally, which we've had for the past several months. I mean, the one thing I would like to ask the group is this, that when the Fed is cutting interest rates into a bear market, all you ever hear is don't fight the Fed, don't fight the Fed, don't fight the Fed, and valuations matter, the market's cheap. But on the other side of the coin, you know, the Fed is tightening policy, uh, and they really haven't signaled that they're done yet. Um, and uh, it, you don't hear anybody saying don't fight the Fed anymore. Uh, and now nobody talks about valuations. So it just Guy Downey says it, Rosie. Um, but quick, quick question for you. In your note, you said discretionary spending in real terms barely expanded in Q2. And you talk about the market recognizing things and not. When we talk about a name like Disney or Starbucks or Nike, they're barely like up. They're unchanged on the year. The market is recognizing, I think, the fact that you're like kind of putting out here about discretionary spending. Will a recession be started by a consumer slowdown, even with the backdrop of the jobs picture, which seems kind of confounding? Or might it start from something um, on the enterprise level? Uh, I think it's going to start at, at the consumer level. And I think that we'll see the first signs of this after the uh, the student loan forgiveness program uh, ends uh, in the coming month. Uh, and so I think that it's going to be it's going to be consumer led. I understand that, uh, you know, the frustration amongst uh, the bears. Uh, and, you know, I've been on this show before. And the question is, where is this recession already? Where is this recession already? But the thing is that interest rates do work their way through long lags. And what's happened this year, 100 percent true, we've had tremendous fiscal stimulus. Um, but that's going to term out before the end of the year. What's not going to go away uh, are the lags from these interest rate increases. And even if John Williams says, well, rates will come down next year, the question is by how much. The economy hasn't reset yet. And I did this work looking back historically. Only a handful of times has the Fed raised the funds rate 500 basis points or more in less than a year and a half. I mean, this is a significant rate shock, uh, and we haven't seen the full impact yet. But what I'm going to tell you is that after the 500th basis point increase in the funds rate, and it hasn't happened that often, okay, uh, it's six months till the recession. And in that six-month period, we're basically, we're in purgatory. We don't know, we don't, we don't know where we are, and we're just asking questions, where's the recession? But unless you believe interest rates don't matter in the most credit-sensitive economy in modern history, uh, or you believe the business cycle somehow been repealed uh, because we've had a year where fiscal policy did have an impact, it is not going to be big enough to offset the lags from these interest rate increases. Mm -hmm. So I think that by the third or fourth quarter, uh, we're going to start to see more evidence, but it's going to come out of the consumer side. Right. Uh, not the corporate side, but there will be spinoff effects. But this is going to be a consumer-led recession, I think will ultimately be more severe than people think into 2024. All right, David, um, always good to speak with you. Thank you. David Rosenberg, Rosenberg Research. Um, we've already I'm going to apologize. Uh, apologize again, by the way, because he, he posed a question to the group. The group, I know. I was like, where does this end? Anarchy. I mean, I've turned this into, yeah. Sorry. Chaos, just yeah. chaos on the show tonight. Sorry. Um, <laughs> Do you think it'll start with We've heard so many stories from retailers so far that have reported about trade down, mm -hmm. et cetera. I do, because if you think the consumer stops spending when something typically happens in the market to the downside. Mm -hmm. It happened in the fall of 2018 from October to Christmas Eve. Consumer spending stopped on a dime because the stock market went down 19.9%. So I'm still of the belief that there's going to be a stock market shock, which will scare the consumer into stop spending, which will then roll into a consumer-led recession. Yes. Right. But on top of that, the student loan repayment plus higher energy prices, that's uh, going to be a headwind. Sure. There's no question. Energy is now a fresh headwind. And even though energy companies have actually probably been the biggest disappointment, although they're probably not out of this earnings season, but relative to year over year, the inflation is, is certainly an issue. Uh, again, I get it back to Dan mentioned uh, Nike, Starbucks and, and, and Apple. I mean, you know, Nike's not going to get away from me on the upside. I mean, what's the multiple you want to pay for these companies? Not a peak market multiple. And it probably started six months ago. Coming up, shares of Lucid on the move after the company's uh, latest results. Numbers from the quarter, plus all of today's Tesla headlines. That's next. Don't count your chickens. Tyson shares dropping as earnings and sales head south. 
So it's a time to take your eggs out of this basket. Whoa. We'll discuss so that when Fast Money returns. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got an earnings alert on Lucid Motors, the EV maker, higher after hours despite our revenue miss. That conference call is just getting started in a few minutes. Uh, let's bring in Phil LeBeau, who's got the latest. Phil. Melissa, I would call that a relief rally. Rally might be a little bit too strong. It is a case of the shares moving higher after the company released Outlook that at least let people say, OK, we know that they plan to build the 10,000 vehicles this year, which was their guidance. And that's really what this is all about. The outlook from Lucid after the Q2 results, the 2023 production stays at at least 10,000 vehicles, liquidity of 6.25 billion. We'll talk more about that in just a little bit. And they do plan to go into SUV production with the next model, the Gravity, in late 2024. As you take a look at shares of Lucid going all the way back to its IPO, I mentioned 6.25 billion. That's how much money they have you know, the liquidity that they have, they believe that is enough to get them into 2025, that they won't have to do a capital raise before then. With all that said, there's the question about demand. And the demand comes, it's being stemmed from the fact that the company has cut prices on its current models, including prices being cut between five and $12,500, brings the base model, the Lucid Air Pure, down to a starting price of 82,400. Now, CNBC did talk with executives after the earnings release today, and they said, we are seeing an improvement in demand. So they do believe that these price cuts, which were initiated over the weekend, have had some impact here. We'll probably get more color in the next few minutes as the conference call, as you mentioned, Melissa, it's scheduled to begin at 5.30 Eastern time. Melissa, back to you. All right. Meantime, Phil, we did see a big move in Tesla on news that the CFO is stepping down. Yep. Uh, you know, some people were saying it's a good sign that he's staying through the end of the year. So it wasn't necessarily, you know, a sign of bad blood or anything like that. But this certainly underscores sort of the key man risk because this comes as news that Elon Musk might have to have back surgery. And so if he's out of the yeah, mix, pre- then who is your backup? The guy who's walking out the door at the end of the year. Well, there are others on the team as well, but Zach Kirkhorn gets the most attention because people have heard more from him on the conference calls after the quarterly earnings than anybody else. And he's been the CFO, what, for the last four years, has been with the company 13, 14 years. So there's a known quantity there. But he is stepping down. That's effective immediately. The chief accounting officer is going to be moved up to the CFO position. And there is a transition period where Zach Kirkhorn will still be there. I I think the interesting thing here, Melissa, is that this speaks to the fact that we've seen a number of executives leave Tesla over the last several years. And I can't tell you the number of times I hear people say, oh, here we go. This person's leaving. This is a sign that they've got problems there. Their executives aren't staying around. 
but they have continued to do well. So you do have to give Elon Musk a little bit of credit here that he may be a tough boss. He may be very tough to work for for some people, but he has had a string of executives who have delivered in the positions that they've been put into. Phil, thank you. Phil LeBeau. You bet. Gene Munster was quoted as saying that uh, working for Tesla for, you know, 13 years is like working for te- working at any other company for 50. Mm. <laughs> That's the wear and tear on, on somebody reporting to Elon Musk. People in relationships with me feel this. I'm sure you feel the same way. <laughs> Lucid, it's interesting. You go back when they, the, the SPAC, they were projecting $5.5 billion of revenue this year. For this year. This is two years ago. They just said $150 million for the quarter. You can do that math. So they're nowhere near it. And the stock is reflecting that. The bounce in the after hours is just what we lost today. And it still probably trades close to, I don't know, 12, 13 times revenue. By any metric, it's still an expensive stock. This wasn't a great quarter. It's just giving back, getting back what it lost today. I mean, if Ford and GM are having difficulty in the EV space, these yeah. startups really have it stacked against them. Well, scale, scale is everything, mm-hmm. right? And Tesla yeah. obviously is such enormous scale. But here you do have this put. With the public investment fund, Saudi Arabia, right. they are there. They seem to be willing to throw, I don't know if you call it good money or bad money, but additional money at it at every point. So this, this will save them, which is something that a lot of other you know, relatively small new EV companies don't have. All right. And by the way, um, Elon Musk just X'd mm. on X uh, that he would like to thank <laughs> Zach it. Kirkhorn for his many contributions to Tesla over the course of 13 difficult years. I thought you were saying Not he was easy. on X. He's, that's the no. Now. Uh, it was a drug uh, thing. Known as Twitter, X. Anyway, uh, a lot more fast money to come. Here's coming up. Next. No spring chicken. Shares of Tyson walking on eggshells as results disappoint investors. So, is this stock a fox in your portfolio, henhouse? The details next. Plus, a lily look ahead. Results out tomorrow, and all eyes are focused on weight loss. But will the stock fatten up your returns? We'll debate. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. For more than a decade, Comcast has been committed to bridging the digital divide and connecting millions to affordable high-speed Internet. But the barriers to get connected go well beyond affordability. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to reach millions with digital skills training, resources, and opportunities needed to succeed in a digital world. Project Up, building a future of unlimited possibilities. Learn more at Comcast.com slash Project Up. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got an earnings alert on Lucid Motors, the EV maker, higher after hours despite our revenue miss. That conference call is just getting started in a few minutes. Uh, Let's bring in Phil LeBeau, who's got the latest. Phil. Melissa, I would call that a relief rally. Rally might be a little bit too strong. It is a case of the shares moving higher after the company released Outlook that at least let people say, okay, we know that they plan to build the 10,000 vehicles this year, which was their guidance. And that's really what this is all about. The outlook from Lucid after the Q2 results, the 2023 production stays at at least 10,000 vehicles, liquidity of 6.25 billion. We'll talk more about that in just a little bit. And they do plan to go into SUV production with the next model, the Gravity, in late 2024. As you take a look at shares of Lucid going all the way back to its IPO, I mentioned 6.25 billion. That's how much money they have you know, the liquidity that they have, they believe that is enough to get them into 2025, that they won't have to do a capital raise before then. With all that said, there's the question about demand. And the demand comes, it's being stemmed from the fact that the company has cut prices on its current models, including prices being cut between five and $12,500, brings the base model, the Lucid Air Pure, down to a starting price of $82,400. Now, CNBC did talk with executives after the earnings release today, and they said, we are seeing an improvement in demand. So they do believe that these price cuts, which were initiated over the weekend, have had some impact here. We'll probably get more color in the next few minutes as the conference call, as you mentioned, Melissa, it's scheduled to begin at 530 Eastern time. Melissa, back to you. 
All right. Meantime, Phil, we did see a big move in Tesla on news that the CFO is stepping down. Yep. Uh, you know, some people were saying it's a good sign that he's staying through the end of the year. So it wasn't necessarily, you know, a sign of bad blood or anything like that. But this certainly underscores sort of the key man risk because this comes as news that Elon Musk might have to have back surgery. And so if he's out of the yeah, mix, then who is your backup? The guy who's walking out the door at the end of the year. Well, there are others on the team as well. But Zach Kirkhorn gets the most attention because people have heard more from him on the conference calls after the quarterly earnings than anybody else. And he's been the CFO, what, for the last four years, has been with the company 13, 14 years. So there's a known quantity there. But he is stepping down. That's effective immediately. The chief accounting officer is going to be moved up to the CFO position. And there is a transition period where Zach Kirkhorn will still be there. I think the interesting thing here, Melissa, is that this speaks to the fact that we've seen a number of executives leave Tesla over the last several years. And I can't tell you the number of times I hear people say, oh, here we go. This person's leaving. This is a sign that they've got problems there. Their executives aren't staying around. But they have continued to do well. So you do have to give Elon Musk a little bit of credit here that he may be a tough boss. He may be very tough to work for for some people. But he has had a string of executives who have delivered in the positions that they've been put into. Phil, thank you. Phil LeBeau. You bet. Gene Munster was quoted as saying that uh, working for Tesla for, you know, 13 years is like working for te- working at any other company for 50. Mm. <laughs> That's the wear and tear on on somebody re- reporting to Elon Musk. People in relationships with me feel this. I'm sure you feel the same <laughs> way. Lucid, it's interesting. You're back when they, the, the SPAC, they were projecting five and a half billion dollars of revenue this year for this year. This is two years ago. They just said $150 million for the quarter. You can do that math. So they're nowhere near it, and the stock is reflecting that. The bounce in the after hours is just what we lost today, and it still probably trades close to, I don't know, 12, 13 times revenue. By any metric, it's still an expensive stock. This wasn't a great quarter. It's just giving back, getting back what it lost today. I mean, if Ford and GM are having difficulty in the EV space... These yeah. startups really have it stacked against them. Well, scale, scale is everything, mm-hmm. right? And Tesla yeah. obviously is such enormous scale. But here you do have this put with the public investment fund, Saudi Arabia. Right. They are there. They seem to be willing to throw, I don't know if you call it good money or bad money, but additional money at it at every point. So this, this will save them, which is something that a lot of other you know, relatively small new EV companies don't have. All right. And by the way, um, Elon Musk just... Xed mm. on X uh, that he would like to thank <laughs> Zach Kirkhorn for his many contributions to Tesla over the course of 13 difficult years. I thought you were saying Not he was easy. on X. He's, that's yeah. the no. Now. Uh, it was a drug thing. Known as Twitter. X. Anyway, uh, a lot more fast money to come. Here's coming up. Next. No spring chicken. Shares of Tyson walking on eggshells as results disappoint investors. So, is this stock a fox in your portfolio hen house? The details next. Plus, a lily look ahead. Results out tomorrow, and all eyes are focused on weight loss. But will the stock fatten up your returns? We'll debate. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Tyson Foods sinking as much as 11% today after posting disappointing results this morning. The meat company posting a bigger than expected drop in both earnings and revenue and announcing four plant closures across the country, an effort to reduce costs uh, amid slowing demand. The stock ended the day down nearly 4%. They're gluts, too, of certain proteins, chicken and pork, beef prices. Feast or famine. Um, And and this, so... I was on Power Lunch, mm. uh, the, and actually it was the exchange earlier in the year, and we were talking about how it was the summer of pork, um, and that actually you know the beef dynamics were were really particularly awful in yes. terms of a drought in the Southwest. And and as we always say, one of the great uh, things about commodities, there's always a supply response. So there's a supply response to lower prices and higher prices. The problem with cattle is it's a long lead time. Um, and so the price of beef is going to continue to stay high. Uh, the price of pork is being bid up. But the cost basis for all of this is going through the roof. And it's killed Tyson. And if you look at Tyson, if you look at JBS, which is a Brazilian meatpacking company, it's one of the biggest ones in the world, you have a, a dynamic where their stocks have, have been 
basically at, 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 at lows for the last 15 months pricing this in. I think it's getting interesting. You've priced in a lot of bad news. So you like tight. Eight-year low, though. In t- I mean, this is an eight-year yeah. low yeah. for the stock, which is in, and people are trading down. We had that conversation six months ago. People are trading down from these things to what was the co- food kitchens, which is a horrible thing yeah. to say, but that's the dynamic going on here. We talk about this great economy all the time, yet when you see a report like this, it makes you wonder what's really happening below the surface. So is it interesting on valuation? Yeah, probably, but it speaks to a much bigger problem, I think. Coming up, some moves in the pharma space. Lilly gearing up for its next quarterly report as the weight loss wars take center stage. What to expect out of those re- results and how the options markets are setting up next. Plus, shares of United Rentals surging to all-time highs. But can the industrial strength last? We're digging into that trade when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Stocks jumping to kick off the week. The Dow rallying more than 400 points as the S&P and Nasdaq both snapping four-day losing streaks. And some after-hours movers here. Paramount jumping after a beat on the top and the bottom line. The company also announcing it will sell publisher Simon & Schuster to KKR. Beyond Meat, meantime, in the red after reporting a revenue miss, cutting its outlook. And Chegg surging more than 25% after the company's CEO said it is building its own you know what? Mm. AI model. <laughs> of course, AI. Um, yeah. But Paramount was yes. uh, really interesting in terms of the metrics they were reporting. Yeah, I mean, it was a beat. Uh, so that was good. This, you know, clearly they have a balance sheet issue. So anything they can do to get cash, that's good. They do have some time before the, before the maturities are upon them. But I was just, you know, if Julie Beale were here, she would say, this was a terrible boyfriend. I'm out. I don't care if he says he's changed. I'm not going back no matter what. I just feel like it was too levered. The world has changed for streaming. They've uh-huh. got to make it profitable. And money is not free. Although they have and it's very competitive. A 35% increase in viewership because of higher inventory, which I thought was pretty astonishing. Even if it's a low bar, that, that's, uh, that's really... Maybe but, good news for Disney. I don't know. I, look, I, the bar was low here, but it's interesting to this. This divestiture is interesting to see where the, the sum of the parts on a lot of these. Remember, I mean, the whole Time Warner thing was that is why it made sense for AT and T not. Um, but but I, I I think the media sector is undervalued, and I think this is showing that. Meantime, all eyes on Eli Lilly earnings, the company turning in its Q2 report before the market opens tomorrow. The drug maker has become a major player in the weight loss drug race, but faces not so slim competition oh, from nice. rivals Novo Nordisk and Pfizer. Lilly's uh, Alzheimer's drug also facing some stiff competition, but one expert says Lilly is still one of the better positioned names in the pharma space. Jared Holes is a healthcare sector specialist at Mizuho Securities. Jared, it's always great to see you. You too. Um, you say the bar's high. Valuation is high, yeah. so it's really got to knock it out of the park at this point. I think so. At least the messaging has to be really positive, right? This is trading at 50 times this year, 37-ish next year. That's three to four times what the peer group is trading at. So it's got to be pretty close to perfect, I think, just in terms of like all the dynamics with the pipeline and timing with launches and things of that nature. So it's got to be pretty great. At the same time, we are expecting the next in the days to come, the results from the Novo Select trials, right? And that will be really key for all of these um, GLP-1 producers. Yeah, exactly. That's going to show us basically the cardiovascular outcomes of a patient population taking the GLP-1s and those that have not, and just kind of comparing heart attack risks, stroke risks, things, things of that nature over a two-year period to see what the real impact is. And if the impact is significant, call it mid-teens or so percent difference, then I think that's going to obviously encourage insurance companies to pay for the drug more widely. Right now, this is basically, like we've discussed it before, I think it's much more of a vanity drug than it is a, a pharmaceutical drug, meaning people that are really you know, clinically obese. But you know, we'll have to see how those results come out. So let's say there is a 15% reduction in cardiovascular events. Does that support the current valuation, or how much more does it add on to the valuation? I think the stocks go up. I think Novo and Lilly on a mid-teens to high-teens delta. It has to. We're looking for a statistically significant, so it's tough to tell what that bar winds up being. But if it does hit statistically significant, which is probably somewhere in the range of 15 to 20 percent, then I think the stocks go up five to 10 percent. They are obviously pricing in a lot here, but you know the the numbers at least appear doable, and then I think the street will likely increase their estimates, at least for the medium and long term, for what these drugs can do. 
So, Jared, there's been some a few knocks on the story, right? Uh, suicidal thoughts, and then this idea of okay, it's not going to be something you're going to be on for life. So that obviously changes the revenue stream. Do you mm -hmm. do you factor those in your model? Do you think that's just noise? How do you think about it? I think it's mainly noise. I mean, anytime you have a drug like this, where some sell side estimates have a hundred billion dollars. There's going to be a net like people are seeking out narratives that are negative, especially for a stock that's been so bulletproof for a number of years. But I feel like the drug has been on the market for a number of years. Right. These are reformulated diabetes drugs now used for obesity. I think we probably would have heard a lot of this over the years. I feel like we're probably scratching and clawing our way to try to get some negative narrative here. Um, and as far as like not taking the drug forever, for sure. You know, I feel like for a lot of the patient population out there, they want to lose 20 to 30 pounds. If they do it, maybe they'll start making better choices, less Coca-Cola, less Doritos, more gym. You know, that's that's the hope at, at some point that we start acting better. Like right now, I think it's like basically a Bahamas and bar mitzvah drug. And like we'll get to a point where we can. I don't know exactly what that means, actually. Well, sure you do. Come on. <laughs> And, you know, I mean, whether you're going to the Bahamas you or you look good when you're reading the Torah. Yeah, right. right exactly. <laughs> okay. Yeah. You want to look good for photos. You want to look good on the beach. And then, okay. you know, at some point you'll and you don't care. You don't uh -huh. care. Right. Um, and then you get off of it. Yeah. We switched to Moderna because it's been an it's six straight sessions of declines, I think, bringing it to levels not seen since the end of 2020. And you had been it, in it at one point. You wanted to ask Jared a question. Well, I, I just, you know, in terms of the market cap and the balance sheet, and this is a company, we know their pipeline. We know what was priced in. We know what COVID meant for this company. Mm -hmm. And by the way, good for Moderna, for everything they did for the world. But, but um, and Dan was doing some research. And, and you know, on my understanding is that 21% net of debt of the balance sheet is in cash. And at some point, um, why does the stock continue to get vilified when you've got that kind of a buffer? Well, I think the balance sheet dynamic is interesting and like could be a bull thesis, but they're also spending at a much higher rate. Remember, the government subsidized most of the R&D right. for this company during COVID. So now they actually have to spend on flu and on the cancer vaccine. So the expense line for the company is very different than it was. And so I think that's the biggest change, that now it's on them to spend and get this pipeline solidified beyond the pandemic, which it's we're kind a, of in. a proved story, kind of like the Cleveland Browns there on your tie. <laughs> nice to work that out. That's right. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> takes a brave, it takes a brave person to wear a Cleveland Browns tie. On, to admit on, you're unless a Unless you're a Modell. Suffering. I mean, <laughs> Give you a lot of credit. Thank you. You're welcome. Appreciate Modell. it. Jared, you're always welcome here. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate <laughs> Jared it. Jared holds the Got Eli Lilly, I mean, Jared's been on this for a while. I think we've done a decent job. By the way, go back to last quarter. They missed last quarter. The stock was trading 375. It's 450 now. So the company does miss. Yes, valuation is stretched, but you're still talking about a company with 32% earnings growth, probably 20% revenue growth. So it's not a ridiculous valuation. And this is one that if this stock sells off tomorrow, analysts are going to race to raise their price targets because a lot of them have missed this move. Can I, I'm going to bring back the guest. Oh, whoa. 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 This, this is talking about regaining control. Quick question. <laughs> if Lily sells off on earnings, do you then buy it ahead of the select results? I think you do. I think you do. Okay. I mean, if it sells off dramatically, you right. do. If it's a $5 move, no. $10 move, nothing to do. But okay. down 25 30 bucks tomorrow, for sure. Yeah. Okay. Jared, thank you again. Thank you. Again. First ever. Wow, you're going. Um, good for you. Right, now. Was that liberating? Did that feel good? <laughs> oh, really good yeah. to break the rules. <laughs> all right. Options traders are betting Lilly stock could fall after its results tomorrow. Mike Co joins us with the action. Mike. Yeah, is one of the busier names in uh, healthcare today. Traded well over two times its average daily options volume in the busiest contract with a September 450 puts. Uh, we actually saw a buyer of 2,300 of those paying 1620 a contract. That's laying out more than $3.7 million in premium to make a bearish bet that it could trade uh, down by 20 bucks or so by September expiration, or it could be a hedge, but it would be a hedge against a pretty big position because that would be insurance on about $100 million worth of the underlying. Mike, thanks. Mike Coe for more Options Action. Tune into the full show. That is Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Coming up, shares of United Rentals having a red-hot summer as the stock sizzles to a new all-time high. Will the run continue? We'll hit that trade next. Plus, our next guest sees a big red flag in the housing market. What is brewing and how he's hoping to profit from turbulent times? We'll bring you that and much more when Fast Money returns.
Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of United Rentals topping the tape today as the stock soars nearly 4.5% to a record close. The construction equipment maker has seen shares rise more than 35% this year and has nearly doubled from its 52-week low. Karen has been in the stock. Yes. I mean, I don't understand why it was up today. I have no idea. I, I, it was sold off last week on earnings for what I thought was, I said, dumb. I regret having said dumb, but it didn't make sense. This is a great story. It's really... Over time, they just build value, build value, build value, build market share. They're absolutely number one. The whole business has changed. People used to own their own construction uh, equipment. Now they don't. They rent. URI is very much ahead of the pack. Their balance sheet is as good as it's been. I like the story. And then throw on infrastructure Mm -hmm. and throw on, you know, reshoring. And there's a lot to like here. I I don't love it, though, when stocks go up for seemingly no reason. Shares of Tilray, meantime, jumping about 4.5% after hours after the cannabis company announced it is buying eight beer and beverage brands from Anheuser-Busch, among the names being sold by Anheuser, Shock Top, and Blue Point Brewing. Tim, you own this one. I do. It's, it's actually a significant position in my cannabis ETF, and yet it's a company that right now has 30% of their revenues in non-cannabis businesses. It's one of the reasons why you know, they had $43 million in free cash flow at the end of the last quarter, and they just announced numbers where, again, sequential growth is 27%. A lot of, lot of issues going on, complex sector to be investing in. But this is a company that, like Erwin Simon, who's the CEO of the company, has taken a lot of heat for you know, buying Sweetwater, buying Montauk Brewery, buying Breckenridge, buying different places because people thought it was like trying to back your way and sneak your way and ultimately turn these into cannabis brands. That was about buying brands that were accretive to the balance sheet. So I, I, I like this move. Coming up, the future of real estate. Our next guest is an early stage investor who will tell us how AI is already changing the space. That's coming up in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Wilshire Lane Capital is an early stage venture capital firm focused on real estate and technology. It recently completed its first generative AI deal with Colleen AI, a platform that helps property managers with the rent and debt collection process. For more on that deal and the future of AI in real estate, let's bring in founder and managing partner Adam Demuyakor. I knew I was going to get that messed up, Adam. Apologies. <laughs> great to have you with us. No, great to be here, Melissa. Yeah, this is not uh, it, not an industry that you necessarily think of as being sort of a, a you know place where AI will be employed, but it makes a lot of sense. There are a lot of sort of just repetitive, monotonous processes that could probably be streamlined and maybe even wholly replaced by AI. Can you wa- walk us through this deal? Yeah, absolutely. So when you think about uh, technology as it pertains to real estate, historically, real estate has been a technological laggard, right? So logistics, um, you know, telecommunications, those are front runners when it comes to technology, but real estate's usually behind. And it's been the case with AI as well. So obviously, with the advent of AI, with OpenAI is coming out with its ChatGPT models, you've seen it impacting media entertainment, logistics, transportation. But we haven't really seen it impact real estate so much. But over the past few months, you're now seeing more of those use cases. And so, as you mentioned, uh, there are so many monotonous, you know, rudimentary manual processes that I don't think people realize that are happening on the back end of real estate. Right. So you're looking at anything from leasing to property management to maintenance and capex uh, collections. These are done by people uh, and they're typically lower level tasks. And now that we have generative AI models, you're able to automate a lot of these processes. And so, as you mentioned, Colleen AI, our most recent deal is actually a company that does exactly that for the collections process. Uh, It uses large language models to generate optimal responses and outcomes in order to be able to communicate with the tenant and remind them such that they can, you know, pay their rent on time. So we're very excited about that one. Are there sub industries that will be completely replaced by this? I think, you know, we like to look at it as an augmentation of the existing industry. So I think that, you know, you have back offices of property management companies where you have people that are, you know, filing paperwork, uh, doing, you know, manual inputs for leasing, uh, handling these processes on on collections and maintenance. And so, you know, the people who are doing this work, uh, there's better things that they could be doing. Right. When you think about real estate, property management tenants. There's higher value, uh, higher value engagement that can occur. It doesn't have to be so transactional. And so I think that if you have automation from AI that flows into this, you actually can allow these people to move into higher engagement with their tenants and turns into a win-win scenario for the industry. 
Adam, it's Tim. Thanks for joining us. You've talked a little bit in your, as reading your notes about the repurposing of some of these office buildings for other things like data center. Uh, I'm just curious your thought on that. And you also talk about uh, at some point the debt component is for an industry that's worth 30 to 50 percent less than it was. I mean, do you have to, to start? I mean, is, do you think that's where this industry could be in a couple of years? Obviously, not all properties, but. Yeah, when you look at office, right, it's been it's really been, you know, uh, shocking, right? The level of change that's occurred over the course of the pandemic initially was because of the pandemic. But now you have the stickiness of this hybrid work from home model, right? I think you're seeing a lot of companies that are determining that it's not enough just to have your workforces working completely remotely. But at the same time, there's difficulty in getting people in the office five days a week, particularly when you have unemployment rates this low. And so as a result, you know, you're seeing a lot of estimates. For example, McKinsey has the steady state occupancy of, of office getting to 30% below pre-pandemic levels. And so that represents about $800 billion of value destruction in the office space. And so, you know, we have these big assets, these big, big buildings here. The question becomes, how can we repurpose them to their higher and best use? And so, for example, we actually have a company uh, called Stuff Storage that goes into the basement spaces of office or underutilized spaces and converts it into self-storage facilities and operates it on the behalf of landlords. Uh, and we think that you're going to see this in a, in a whole slew of other repurposing, right? Obviously, multifamily, you can convert some offices to apartments. You can repurpose into self-storage data centers, as you mentioned, uh, logistics. And so I think over the next, we'll call it five years or so, you're going to see more of that repurposing and, and how technology can be a part of that. Adam, we'll have to have you back. Wasn't enough time. <laughs> Appreciate it. No, always, Adam always a pleasure. So great to be here. <laughs> yes, thank you so much. Some interesting things uh, coming out of Adam here in terms of the view on commercial real estate repurposing. Repurposing. Yeah. So AI isn't all, I mean, people are terrified of it, but if it helps make their job more productive in their current jobs, that's actually a good thing, Melissa. Mm -hmm. Look at me, learning. <laughs> I'm, an, I'm a poster child of AI. That's, that's right. Up next, Final Trades. Final Trade time, Tim. I still believe in this broadening, but I, I, I like the industrial sector. I like Boeing. I'm long Boeing. Uh, you had a nice move in the stock. It's actually back up near those breakout levels. Stay there. Chairwoman. I also agree in the broadening, which is why I like the value stuff, and I'm uh, short the IGV, the high flyer. Dan. Uh, I think the relative underperformance in semis is going to remain an issue for the balance of the summer, so I'm a seller of the SME. Guy. Gilead, led by Daniel O'Day. We called him D-Day in D -Day. college. D-Day, yeah. Moving into oncology. Gilead has been moving lower left to upper right, Mel. Did you really? Yeah, we Is really that really did. his nickname? D-Day? Daniel O'Day. What would you call him? D-Day. I don't know. Daniel. Dan, yeah. Uh, thanks for watching Fast Definitely. Money. <laughs> Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. All opinions expressed by the Fast Money participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Fast Money participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Fast Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Fast Money Disclaimer. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.